podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It is the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk, Neil Atkinson with Andy Heaton, Adam Smith and Mike Nevin. Uh, that is your part one of the show. Part two, we're going to be talking to Ian Salmon about his new play, which is really, really exciting. He's coming up very, very soon indeed. And then after seven o'clock, got a fantastic conversation with Rory Smith uh, about the article he wrote this week on the New York Times about the gap uh, between the Champions League sides now that is growing and growing and the future of the competition. And we're going to close this off looking ahead to Liverpool at the weekend going against West Ham in this run of games they've got coming up it, between now in the end of the season home games against sides in the bottom half of the table sides who are also likely to come to Anfield and be pretty passive it is fair to say I'm expecting very 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 little from David Moyes' West Ham at the weekend and even less from Rafa Benitez's Newcastle the week after Liverpool will have to make all the running in both of those games but I want to start off talking about the audition period that we're now in and it's a reminder Adam Smith football is a perpetual river it doesn't stop you can be simultaneously brilliantly placed and to almost certainly end up in the last the last stage of the Champions League with as much right to think you can win it as any other side you can be simultaneously looking to end up finishing your own league season in second place with an eye on next season and yet simultaneously that eye on next season's prevalence if you're Nathaniel Klein if you're Trent Alexander-Arnold if you're Joe Gomez if you're Dejan Lovren if you're Joel Matip and maybe even if you're still Alberto Moreno who might have started this season thinking you know what my place is pretty safe and that's before we even get to the goalkeepers there is an audition period on as to who will still be at the club next season and who will be starting as a Liverpool defender and goalkeeper I think that's especially true with this manager who is happy to let players impress him. I think there are some managers that will make up their mind and that's that and there's nothing you can do about it. And, you know, in the case of someone like Jose Mourinho, he's quite happy to throw a player under the under the bus if he thinks, you know, that's that. Although with Jose Mourinho, it doesn't matter so much because the bus won't be moving. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's what he will do. Whereas Klopp will happily say to a player, you know, I, I believe in my ability to train you. I believe in your ability to get better show me you're getting better. So I think there's quite a number of players that will be looking at this, the end of the season and the summer as an opportunity to say, well, I can impress this manager and I can, I can show this manager what I've got. Now, I think one of the, I'm a big supporter of the manager. I think one of the big criticisms I would have of him is that sometimes he has too much faith in his players. Now, I'm sure if he were in the room, he'd say, well, if I didn't do that, then you wouldn't see the development that we get because that's of what course. I get from it, blah, 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 which is totally fair. But I think if if the manager, had, when he arrived at the football club, realised that Simon Mignolet wasn't good enough, for example, where would we be now compared to where we are? I think if you, for example, were to swap David De Gea at United and Simon Mignolet with us, I think we'd be challenging City and I think United wouldn't even be in the top half because their defending is really quite poor. So it, it, it's, a, it's a fault of the managers for me, but it's also one of his strengths. And now you've got players like Nathaniel Klein who will be saying, I need to show the manager that, that this long layoff I've had hasn't completely ruled me out of the game. And then I can be Liverpool's right back next season because Joe Gomez isn't going to be a right back long term and neither probably is Alexander-Arnold. So yeah, it, 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 I think it's quite a fascinating period in, in, in the club for quite a number of players there's a number of players who've got opportunities uh, who will get opportunities to impress as well Andy I think that's the other thing to point out there is, as Adam says the manager will be looking at them for me Moreno was fascinating you know at the start of the season it looked like he was he'd reclaimed the left back berth he'd he, he, bar one bad, bad out and he performed he performed admirably now you, you struggle to you struggle to get him to your first 11 for, for, for any game I don't think there's a, I doubt any of us around the table we'll be picking him ahead of Robinson Robertson sorry I think it, it tells you the story that you will get opportunities under this manager players will get opportunities and, and they can take them and that, that breeds that breeds a good strong dressing room and training ground mentality on the one hand but on the other hand if you're Moreno you're thinking hang on I can get back in it's it's possibly the worst time to be outside looking in of the season um, because it's starting to get really serious now and whereas you know you might might take a chance early on you can clearly see what points we do need to be where we want to be at the end of the season but I'd also qualify that in saying Albi Moreno did play a lot of games this season and came from nowhere um, it's easy now to look back and go oh well you know it was his position but it really actually it wasn't it wasn't um, in the summer. It was not no, in the summer at not, all. Not at all in the summer. And he's earned that. And, you know, I think he's earned the manager's respect there. And I think, you know, you'd expect Robertson to start the majority of the games the rest of the season because he's got he's, he's in that where the, the the manager loves. He's got that rhythm. But, um, look, the, the other way to look at it is, is in so much as the, you go back 12 months and our, our um, limited options, shall we say, at the time compared to now, 
you know, you can see, I, I honestly think the competition at the back, you, you look at Liverpool's whole 11 coming up, and, the, you know, it's kind of, the front the, the, the front half of the team is kind of settled. You know where you are with them. Whereas the back Van Dijk aside, you've got a lot of players there I've got to ask themselves a lot of questions. I actually think that's a positive thing because I think sometimes we get caught in this thing where people know they've got the shares. Mm. But out of nowhere, everyone's really got to be on it to stay in. Might never. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a whole competition for places thing, which, you know, great Liverpool sides of the past um, really thrived on because <sighs> the personalities that they, they, they brought in were strong personalities and responded to that pressure. Um, and that was identified in those players before we signed them. Um, and generally speaking, we got it right through our most successful years. And I think when Andy talks about the back, the back four or back five or whatever you want to call it, there, and you know it seems nailed on that Van Dijk will be playing centre half for Liverpool next season. And then so you don't. Sorry, you don't. <laughs> well, that's right. Yeah, let's hope so. Let's hope he doesn't get injured. Um, but then you've got, and I, I think it's fascinating that Lovren appears to be, I think, Klopp's first choice as a partner to him at the moment, and think. Dejan's always a bit up and down. He has been all the time. He's been at Liverpool, but you can see there's a quality player in there. It's just a question: can he deliver eight in ten? Can I ask you, ask you though, Lovren's an interesting one because in all the time he's been at Liverpool, he's never really been in a settled back four. Mm. And that isn't me saying he's brilliant and he's and he's more than capable of being there. He's, look, he's doing really well at the minute. You can't knock him. Same as Moreno. All yeah. you got to do is reproduce that week in week out. But what I'm curious about is when Van Dijk signed, and even in my head, Matter for me is the more natural fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lovren's kind of took that opportunity. Yeah, I think he's embraced, you know, the style of play, a player he needs to be alongside uh, Van Dijk. And the interesting thing for me is that I, I think we've, I, I've sort of seen enough of Lovren to say that he, he can be. I think he's just a bit too inconsistent. I think he's a very, very likable person. Um, you know, the, he's had difficulties in his. Do you like it, him because it, he, he likes a challenge? No, I like I like him. I, I like him because I, I think there's a lot about his about his history. About his career, about his his background, um, I think he's I think he's a little bit flawed, and that that, that you know flaws often make people very very likable. I mean, Paul Gascoigne was a likable character, but had loads and loads of flaws. Um, and and I think interestingly as well, I mean, personally speaking, if if I was picking a team for next season, I'd be looking at Joe Gomez um, as as Liverpool's oh. best centre back for the next six or seven years. I think I think Gomez is interesting, Adam. One of the reasons why I think Gomez is interesting in the context of Lovren when and Matter when when Andy says that Lovren hasn't really played in the settle back four, I think one of the, the reasons for that is Lovren. And I think that if you look at Lovren and you look at Matip and now you look at Gomez as well, the, my concern if I'm Klopp, I'm, it might be that Klopp doesn't want that settled the back four. It might be that he wants that to chop and change a little bit. But if he does all three of them have, over the last sort of 12, 18, two years, the attendance record's not been 100%. It's not like they've been absolutely fit and available for selection every week, far from it. And in Lovren's case, you know, the, as much as there's the idea that he does occasionally lose it in a game, there's also the fact that he's not reli- as reliable maybe as you'd like for fitness, given the wear and tear that's been on him through his whole career at this stage. I think one of the most interesting things about Lovren is that this is the first point at which he won't be able to think of himself as clearly the best defender in the back four whatever else you know we might think as supporters about who the best defender is there's been nobody that's been head and shoulders better than Lovren that you would say I would rather X played I know there were some people that would always say that but you know generally speaking you would say he is a decent solid enough defender but he's not He's not better or worse than Matip. He's not better or worse, you know, in a, in a, in a sort of one-off yeah. game than Sacco, than, you know, whoever, even Clavan that you want to mention. Now is the first time where he's very clearly not going to be the first choice centre-back. That's going to be Van Dijk. So it's who's going to play with Van Dijk? And so in the past, there might have been something about Lovren's mentality where he thought, well, I feel a bit of a twinge here, so I'm just going to say I can't, you know, I'm just going to take this game off because I'll get back in the team because I'm one of the better centre-backs. If that's not the case anymore, and he's looking at, exactly like Mike said before, other players that potentially are going to, you know, put themselves forward, thrive under the competition, Lovren can no longer be assured that he's going to be the starting centre-back alongside Van Dijk. Um, And so... I, I would be intrigued to see if next season his fitness will get better. Or between now and the end of the or, season. Well, it's, yeah, that's fair enough as well, because, because ordinarily you would assume he'll have one game off, two games off, three games off between now and the end of the season. With Gomez, 
I wonder whether next season might be one season too soon for him to, to become the first choice centre-back alongside Van Dijk. And I, I wonder whether we might see that more in cup games or something along those lines a next phase. season. Yeah, a phased in so that in two seasons' time, he's now the first choice alongside Van Dijk. But that's, you know, I don't know. Look, when you, when you say settle back for me, or you can say as he had the run of games, but there's also the element of, when I say settle back for, there's been no real rhythm. There's been no... There's been no solid idea of what a Liverpool defence is supposed to do. So he knows what you're arguing is. So he knows, for instance, I'm starting this game, I'm starting next to Virgil van Dijk. Virgil will do this, 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 this is and my this, job. and this, I will do this. This, this yeah. is my job. This is my remit. This is what I'm supposed to do. If we're in this situation, we're going to do that. In that situation, I'm going to do this. Yeah. And then when you get that, and you get that rhythm come in and out, and you don't have that mad flux where you've got a different partner every week, you're on a different side, we're going to defend deep, we're going to defend high. I know what my goalkeeper's doing. Can I ask you a question on the goalkeeper? The question I'd ask you is, how is there a level Carrius can reach and demonstrate and stay at between now and the end of the season where you wouldn't be looking to buy another goalkeeper, uh, another goalkeeper to start, Mike? I mean, there's, there's lots and lots of talk around the lad who's currently playing for Roma, makes a great save in the week. You know, there's lots of talk that Liverpool have been interested in for a while. Is there a level that Liverpool, is there a level that Carrius can reach and stay at where you'd go, you know what, let's go with it? Or are you in almost all circumstances, a hey, let's invest in a goalkeeper, man? Um, I mean, my tendency right at this point now is for Liverpool to invest in a new goalkeeper for next season. But, you know, you, you mentioned the word audition before. I mean, Carrius is basically on trial uh, for the rest of the season. He's been given the, the shares, he's been given the opportunity to. to Stake a claim, um, and and amid that claim, you know you've got to see more consistency from it. It's been promising of late, the last two or three games. I think he's, he's done well. He's made, he's begun to make saves, um, not completely flawless, but then you know all goal, all goalkeepers do make mistakes from time to time. Um, I think he's demonstrating. I think maybe he's he's got a bit of confidence behind behind him because he's had a few good games and. Ultimately, you know, if he's a confidence player, then you know the, 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 there's a ceiling, isn't there, that you can reach? And really, it's up to him now. He's got potentially something like 15, 16 games. He could become, he could be a European Cup winner by the end of the season. Who knows? Liverpool have got a lot of money, Andy. They've got a lot of money. We've got as much. We're the ninth richest club in the world. Liverpool will spend a lot of money this summer. Um, but Liverpool's money is not endless. No one's money is endless. But Liverpool's money is not endless. Is there a is there a level carriers can reach that can make you go? You know what? Let's stick with this fellow rather than put 60, 50, 60 million on the lad from Roma. And what does that look so, like to you? Th- th- so this is this is the mad contradiction. I would only replace, Car- I would only look to replace Carius if we have to spend that kind of crazy money, because I think the gap between I wouldn't replace Carius with another Carius if that makes sense. Makes complete sense. I'd, I'd, I just think the gap between the really, really, really elite goalkeepers and the rest is a chasm. It's a chasm. Maybe Loris apart, and maybe and he's regressed a little bit. Yeah, unless you can get one of the top 10 goalies in the world. I mean, even though I don't believe in goalkeeper stats, but broadly, if you look at save percentages, they're all about much of a much, and there's a huge drop-off. So, yeah, that's the contradiction in all of it. I would only go if we're going to go big. Would you want to go if you're going to go big, Adam? I mean, and I'm, I'm, I'm what can Carriers do to convince you? I think that I, I think Andy summed it up perfectly there. Like one of the names bandied about is Jack Butland, for example. And, and I just don't think that the difference between... Uh, for the for the type of money that you probably have to spend to bring Butland in as well, you know, you're probably talking 30, 40 million. I, I don't think the difference between what Carrius has shown in the last few games and Jack Butland is huge. The problem is that before the last few games, he didn't look great. I mean, you know, he, I think it was John Gibbons coined the nickname Smoke Hands. You know, it, he didn't look like a particularly great goalkeeper. But... All of the stats, all of the opinions of people who watched him in the Bundesliga said that he was a much better goalkeeper than we were watching. If what we have is the goalkeeper that we've seen over the last few games, uh, you know, where he's given very, very good, very assured performances, then I absolutely would not be spending 19, uh, uh, sorry, 30 to 40 million to replace him with Jack Butland. If he's uh, some games good, some games bad, then yes, we spend big money to replace him. I think part of the biggest problem is I'm not entirely sure Liverpool Do, fans know what they want from a goalkeeper. You look, you look at the manager's attitude towards not signing a centre half other than Van Dijk. Um, you want to see that replicated? I think I think that's inter- well, I think it tells you a lot about the manager's mentality towards these things. Either, you know, go hard or go home, so to mm. speak. Um, just just on kind of, I'm going to start repeating myself on this, but I, I just think what's helped is that he's been told he's number one and he's not looking over the shoulder, going, "I'm free to make my own decisions." Okay, this is the Anfield Rapid Radio City Talk. After the break, I'm chatting away to Ian Salmon about his play. 
it is the Anfield Rap on Radio City Talk. And as promised, Ian Salmon to talk about the new play, the new production that he's doing. Uh, and Ian, first and foremost, I know nothing about this. I've been away. But also, you've not really been talking about what it's been about full stop. No. Should we start with what it's about and why you've not been talking about what it's about before we get on to where it is and how people can see it? Okay. Um, the reason I initially didn't give any real... Full details out is because it's it's play called those two weeks as people are possibly already aware, and the two weeks in question are the two weeks immediately prior to Hillsborough, and the play runs from the first of April to the fourteenth of April. So the day itself doesn't happen within the scope of the play. The play is the play is the story of one family, one one fictional family, in the two weeks before, and it's it's kind of a take on how Liverpool was the last time Liverpool was normal. And the play comes about because my myself and my wife went out for a coffee one Christmas Eve morning and I'd, I was a couple of plays in and we are talking about what I was going to write next and Jeanette was talking about a film that she'd seen, I was talking about a book that I'd read and in, and in both those, the point of the story happened at the very end and was only unveiled at the very end. And her take on that was, well, you should write something similar. And my immediate response was, well, for our generation, because I'm 54 years old, for, for my generation... There is obviously one moment in history that divides Liverpool into before and after, and that is Hillsborough, because everything changes after that. Obviously, for the families who lost loved ones, it changes completely and forever. For for survivors, it changes completely and forever. And for the people who are in, in the central pens, it changes with the horror of what they went through. And for the people on the outer pens and in the stands, it also changes because of what they've witnessed and what they experienced on the day. So... I couldn't write the story of the 96 because it's been told so well before and I have no right to tell it because that's their story. I also didn't feel I had the right to tell the story of my brothers who were in the left-hand pen and my father who was in the stand because, once again, that's their story to tell. It, it strikes me that there's, there's, there's an excellent book by Jonathan Coe, I don't know if you've read it, called The Rotters Club, which touches on the, the, the well, it's slap bang in the middle and it's a really interesting piece of writing because you begin to feel as though he's sort of lost lost the thread a little bit mm. and then the the Birmingham bombing that leads to the 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 uh the incarceration of the Birmingham six happens yeah. and this thing kind of happens sort of slap bang in the middle of the story and you don't see it coming at all because it's 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 it, 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 it's very cleverly sort of done and as I say you almost feel like you've you almost feel like the author's lost lost a little bit of control but, but what's happening is he's working towards this defined event which changes everything he's trying to demonstrate a sense of normality yeah. to then tell the story of this is what this is what happens afterwards and that to me, that sounds like what you're trying to do here is you're trying to tr- trying to trying to tell a story that, that says this is this is what everyday life was like for some people, and now immediately afterwards there's a thing that happens, and then everyday life can never be the same. Yes, yes, completely. And there's my touchstone for it. Um, as I said, the conversation that Jeanette and I had, um, her touchstone was a Robert Pattinson film called Remember Me that she'd seen, um, where Robert Pattinson is just a young man living his life he, he has he falls in love with someone he has issues with his father he reconciles all this and he goes to visit his father and while he's standing in his father's office he looks out the window and you see the first plane coming into the twin towers because that's where he is and my touchstone very much for it was um paul oster's book the brooklyn follies which is a magnificent book um new york novelist and it's a story about a man in his 70s who lives in a brownstone in brooklyn um, a young woman moves into the downstairs flat and it's, they have this platonic love affair because nothing's ever going to happen between them. There's a massive age gap and it's just a platonic relationship. He meets a woman, she meets a man. He is diagnosed with cancer. He gets treatment for the cancer and he goes to his oncologist, gets the all clear. And as he walks out to the, the oncologist on the last page, the first plane flies into the Twin Towers. So Paul Oster, as a New York novelist, has just written his 9-11 book and you don't realise it's still the very last page. So I, I kind of wanted to do that. So the, the end game was the idea of, um, if the end game sounds a very shallow term, the, the end purpose of it was we know where we are at the end. What was it like before and and what was... How would you how do you exist as a family before in the, in the last time that life was normal? Because just normal life is hard enough on its own. Is the I'll talk about where you're doing it, but you know you're saying that you were two plays in when you conceived of this, and we were just having a chat beforehand that you're you're being quite standoffish in rehearsal. Yeah, is there a real source of sense from you that you 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 want to give this story as much room to breathe as possible? That you're you're effectively trying to trying to drop something in, and then 
you know, leave it to leave it to your actors, leave it to your director to really to to really get 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 to the core of it, rather than the idea that you feel as though no, I've got a really defined narrative in mind on this. Well, I had a, a very defined narrative, but the script that I gave, um, I mean, the script is basically about three years old now, and our first meetings, myself and the director, about fifteen months ago, and our first auditions were literally a year ago this week. Um, so they've had a lot of time to live with the script and and work with it. And the fact that I've stood away from it, the way they've defined the characters, so much of the feedback I've had from the actors from day one when they read the script was they haven't had to do a great deal because the characters are so strongly on the page, which obviously is a massive compliment to me. But when you see what they do, I mean, you know this, you're a writer. You, yeah, yeah. You've seen people do this with your work. When you see what they do, they're putting in things that you've never expected in your life. In Act 2, there's an argument between a couple of members of the family. And I walked into rehearsals a couple of weeks ago, and I sat there and went, I didn't realise I'd written that as funny, but it comes across as funny. And one of the things I want to put forward about the play is that a great deal of this play is humorous. It's not it's not a downbeat play, it's not a dark play. A great deal of it is humorous because it is family life, and it's, it's a Liverpool family, so there's a great deal of humour in the Liverpool family. And there's a great deal of my family in it. There's a great deal of Jeanette's initial life with me, although obviously that was a few years earlier. And it's about a, a lad who's a red with a, a girlfriend who's a blue who's just coming in and meeting the family for the first time. Okay, so where, uh, where and when can people see it? People can see it from Wednesday the 28th of Feb uh, yep. to Saturday the 3rd of March at the very, very wonderful Unity Theatre on Hope Place, which is just off Hope Street. The, the Unity is an absolute gem in Liverpool Theatre Land. It's something that they can do things there that people aren't doing elsewhere. So whereas the Royal Court are obviously the massive, massive Scouse comedies and absolutely brilliant at it, the Empire, your big shows and the Everyman and Playhouse have that more sort of... Um, that, that that kind of, for want of a better word, artistic crowd. This is, the Unity can take risks on new stuff and they can take risks on local stuff. And what we've done with this is we've created a play that is for people who don't think that they go to the theatre. What I want in the play is I want an audience that thinks the theatre isn't for them. They'll watch stuff on TV and they'll watch, you know, I'm going to big up myself, I'm going to compare myself to the, ah. the masters now. But if you've ever, ever watched anything by Bleasdale or Russell or McGovern, then this is for you because this is this is the milieu that, that we're actually working within. This is the this is the level that we aspire to and the mood that we aspire to. So we've created something you would watch on TV. Now this is just happening live in front of you, which is a much better way of seeing a story. Much better way of seeing a story, indeed. Listen, that's all the facts that you need. Wednesday, the twenty eighth of February, through until Saturday, the third of March, up on Hope Place. There's loads and loads to do around there as well. Make a full evening of it uh, this is the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk and after the break I'm going to be talking to Rory Smith of the New York Times I'll tell you what we get about the place we do we've just talked about New York there as well my word I'll get someone from Birmingham in for part four a brief break before we go over to Rory uh, if you're listening to this as a podcast I've got Andy Heaton and I've got Mike Nevin to talk about Reds Bet uh, and to talk about the Reds Bet Liverpool specials this week and in general uh, the Reds Bet project as ever we say if you're not a gambler if this isn't for you that's perfectly understandable uh, if you do gamble do so responsibly and enjoyably as well we want both of those things not just one or the other and that's part of the point of the Liverpool specials and there's a big one this week isn't there Mike you've got yourself a, a double uh, Callum Smith to beat Nicky Holskin inside six rounds and Liverpool to beat West Ham that's sitting there uh, on the Reds on, on the Reds bet specials site yes it is and the price is 11 to 8 I think on that so it's um, so it's a it's, I think it's an interesting bet for Liverpool fans who like the boxing um, Callum Smith is actually um uh, and now an ambassador for Reds Bet. Um, I've had the pleasure of meeting him. Uh, and What's he like? He's a lovely lad. Yeah. Dead hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You want him on your side in a scrap. Let's put it that way. Um, lovely, but he is. He's a very, very. He's a clever guy. Um, he's 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 got all the right values, principles, ethics, um, particularly work ethic as well. And um, if you haven't seen him fight before, he's something special. Everyone sort of believes he's the best of the four Smith brothers. Um, all of them. That, that's a high bar. It is indeed. Even his own brothers. Even his own fair. brothers. Yeah. Um, and he's he's the youngest of them. Probably the most naturally talented. Um, I don't want to get myself in the scrap with the other three for saying that, but um, <laughs> yeah, he's a re- he's a real talent. And and this fight uh, tomorrow night is effectively. A final eliminator for the super middleweight championship championship of the world. Um in the in the final, should he beat Nicky Holden, he'll fight uh, either George Groves or uh, Chris Eubank Jr. Gro- Groves actually beat Eubank Jr. last week, but also was, was injured. 
uh, and the series has to be completed by June the 24th. So if Groves is fit to fight, it'll, it'll be against Groves, but there's a possibility that uh, it might have to be a replacement and they might backtrack and, and put uh, Eubank in with him as well instead. Um, so it should, be, it should be a great night tomorrow night. Um, I think the fight's in Nuremberg in Germany. Because he was originally meant, he was, meant to be he was moved there for Bremer, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was fighting Jürgen Bremer, who would have been a real tough, a tough opponent, 39, 39. But he's he's pulled out of the fight, uh, and uh, Nicky Holson has been has been brought in as a as a standing. Um, but he's still he's got it. I think he's undefeated. Um, so it's it's not an easy fight. Callum should win, um, as, as as Liverpool should win against West Ham. So it's a it's a nice double. It is indeed. Uh, the other ones that are on there, and it's interesting because Liverpool are against West Ham. Your perfect weekend. Uh, it's in perfect weekends always Liverpool, Everton and Man United. The perfect weekends Liverpool win, Everton lose and United lose, Andy. Well, this week United have got a tricky game against Chelsea and Everton go to Watford and they're hugely inconsistent. Uh, basically, Allardyce is following the, the Hodgson algorithm of winning one, drawing one and losing one in every three games. And United against Chelsea is going to be an interesting one with the Mourinho-Conte stuff on the sidelines. Yeah, but what, what price is Conte Mourinho? Just out of interest. <laughs> <laughs> what round? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, what, I mean, what was the spread on half an hour to uh, forty-five minutes? Exactly? You'd have to fancy yeah, Jose because uh, he won't be worrying about worrying about losing his hair weave, will he? So uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you listen. Know. I tell you what, anyone who's hard enough to get their hair done like that and not care, well, do you know, fair you know what I'm saying? And I have to, I have to say, I think that it's the most impressive hair weave I've seen. Um, it's it, it's beautiful. What the Conte weave? Yeah, the Conte was, weave. As opposed yeah. to Rooney, Rooney who's gone bald three times. That's, That's right. I, I, I think it's been five actually. I, love I, I actually know the answer to this. He's had <laughs> six replacements. Yeah, allegedly. Yeah, um, Bogger, the, 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 I mean, the, the, the thing the thing about him about Rooney is that he, the back he, of his he, legs he's, bare. He's just he's, he's just meant to be bald. Um, and his, 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 his head's not having it. Um, <laughs> Neither are his legs. No, no, and his legs as well, yeah. But uh, t- t- still a great player. Uh, perfect weekend then. Liverpool win, Everton lose, and United lose. That sits itself at 11-1. to 1. Uh, Great weekend. As Liverpool win, Everton fail to win, and Man United fail to win. And that is an interesting one. That, that one feels very plausible, Andy. Yeah, hopefully. Um, you know what, though? It'd be very allardyce for them to get a result. Because you don't know where they're coming from in the minute. You look at them, and sometimes they look atrocious, and you're thinking... I mean, really poor. There's me having a dig at Everton. When they're, when they're bad, they're very, very bad. But then you'll have that, that Allardyce algorithm. I mean, you, you'll, have, you'll be keeping a run on total. Is, is he due his point this week? I, th- I think he's, I think he's done sorry, he is. It's 1.3, is it? He's not, yeah, he's not, I don't think he's due this one because I think last time out they, they beat Palace in what was one of the worst games of football I have ever seen in my life. Uh, they beat Palace. So yeah, I, I remember think, that one, yeah. Uh, so I think that there is definitely something in them, uh, maybe. The, the, this, the, I think this one, they might not be due it. But what, Watford are hugely inconsistent what, as well. So Go back to United. What price is Chelsea? Uh, for the game? Yeah. I haven't got it off the top of my head. I, it, it's fascinating because you, you get a sense that everything's riding on this for Conte because you've got all the rumblings in the background. Mm-hmm. And he, he's been quite forthright himself saying, oh, he needs to speak to the Chelsea board, etc., etc. It's kind of that brinkmanship, which is kind mm-hmm. of, not to always hark back to my favourite person in the world, but there's a bit of a Benitez about him in so much sure. as that he's pushing him a little bit and this will strengthen his hand massively. So you think he will put everything into this, whereas because of the inertia around it, maybe he's not been as focused but, as, he, as he could have been yeah, and I th- previous I think in the season. It, and it's interesting, you, you're talking about Conte there, but... Having spoken to United fans midweek, um, they're slowly tiring of of the negativity of Mourinho's football. And I didn't see the game against Seville midweek, but I apparently, did. apparently it was a dreadful spectacle. It was terrible. Um, and the, you know the, the, these United fans that I'm speaking to, are, you know, are, are trusted. They know their football, um, and I think for, for them, as much as they've sort of admired him thus far. There has to come a point where United have to be true to themselves and their philosophy of, attack, of attacking football, and he, 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 he does go against the grain. The thing is with, with the Jose, though, and I think this is why he fits United, is the fact it's not that they love to be hated in so much as the, they like to get under people's skin, and I think that's because that's one of Jose's traits as well. Yeah. That's why he's maybe had maybe a little bit more rope than, than he might have done. If yeah. it was someone else well, with the, the same the, record, the, you know, the Man United they do what they want. But well, there's, there's an element to that, but I think what strikes me as interesting on this one is this is the two managers who are in a funny position with their own dressing rooms mm. uh, if, if reports are to be believed both of them and who simultaneously have turned this this game of football into a hugely personal thing mm. and that's why I think you know the idea of seeing yeah, uh, who's prepared to go out there and scrap for their for their gaffer to who's, be honest with be- you Who's better at keeping the concentration up the two Neil did you think? Uh, well, that's, and that's the next thing is who's, 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 well I, I, I think Mourinho's got form so I back Mourinho to be honest with you I think if you look yeah. at his entire career he loves you know he's, he's, he's picked fights all the way through mm. so I think you can look at his track record and say he's got form but that said you know 
know, there is a there is a thing here where he's getting footballers to not play as themselves. You know, mm. I think that for a minute, for, at the minute, what what United are doing, Ashley Young will, you know, he'll die in a ditch for you and he'll go to the, you know, he will, he would for almost any man. Rashford, yeah. Rashford, but I think you, you're asking them to not be themselves, if you know what I mean. Whereas totally. I think that it's, but Conte's got, I think he gives his players, I thought Chelsea were good against Barcelona. I was, I was surprised when people weren't saying they were good. Mm. I thought I was impressed with them. I haven't watched both Chelsea and United this week. I thought Chelsea, they really did. They did the sort of job that you couldn't do if you weren't buying into what your manager was saying sure. uh, no, in I terms agree. of in terms of funneling I think, people and, around. And I think it's interesting. We're all talking about about it as Conte versus Mourinho, and what it actually does, <coughs> excuse me, is um, is underline this this cult of the manager. That yeah, is, which that is so prevalent in the Premier League, and and that's why you know the, the, we endlessly discuss. The merits and and, and and otherwise with with the Jurgen Klopp because Liverpool Football Club has never been has always has always embraced the cult of a manager ever since Shankly it's Shankly's fault ultimately that they were that were like that um, and that's why we talk so much about Jurgen um, but then similarly you know then you can make comparisons about you know the, the the style of football that Liverpool play and the style that that Spurs play and there's very much a Klopp versus Pochettino thing going on there just, and the battles that we've had with them over the last couple of seasons. Just talking about betting, this is a, a a good week for historical bets, uh, given the 11 year anniversary of the golf swing <laughs> in the in the Camp Nou. So I was just thinking, then going back to the Mourinho thing, what odds on uh, a Conte knee slides all the way up the touchline? A la Mourinho when he was at Porto, or a Mourinho one, uh, because I think Mourinho. Oh no, because they do things gracefully now. Well, we'll see about well, that. I think yeah. we will see about that on Sunday. It'll be a great game to watch. Uh, go through the Liverpool specials. Liverpool should beat West Ham. Uh, hammer down. Uh, we've got a Liverpool to win 4 0. Up to Nark. Yes, my work. Thought so. Yeah. Uh, West Ham to miss a penalty. Uh, 16 to 1. That sits at. Uh, any old iron? Uh, any player over 30 or over to score? That's right. We yeah. don't have a ton of them, really, do we? No. And it, Well, this is an interesting, it's an interesting bet, really. Because they've um, got loads of them. They, they, yeah, they've got about six players, I think, in their squad who were uh, over over 30. Some of them won't be playing. I mean, um, I think Ashley, Ashley Cole. It's Ashley, is that, no, it's, Patrice uh, Evra. They've got Evra. Evra, sorry, I'm getting confused. Um, so he'll, Great he, left-backs of your... Yeah, exactly. Um, whereas Liverpool really, realistically, have James Milner um, and Simon Mignolet. So... There's all kinds of little nuances in there, you know. Does does Mignolet get a game? Probably, no. probably not. I mean, it's be, it's been said, but he but he will be on the bench. And you know, if there's an injury to um, to to, to carry us, does he come come on and get a, a late equaliser from a header from a corner? It's a it's a long shot, isn't it? But um, Mark, Mark Noble's thirty years old. Yes. Mark, How take, did that happen? Mark Noble's thirty years old takes the pens. James yeah. Milner, if he plays, would, would possibly take possibly a take a pen. Yeah. Uh, and if he plays, also he'll play through yeah. midfield. And, uh, saying he, that I'm not trusting this Wikipedia. It's saying he's thirty, but he's also saying he's five foot eleven, which he's, he's definitely not. <laughs> a footballer's heights are, are the last shrouded mystery of the game, as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't believe any registered heights. No. They're all either too tall or too small. Yeah. It's uh, like a, Virgil Van Dijk's meant to be six five. Yeah. He looks about six seven, six. Yeah. When he stood next to Carragher in that picture, Carragher's six mm. one. I've met Carragher. I know how tall. Carragher is in comparison Absolutely. to me. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, footballers' I, height the I, last great myth. I always thought that I was roughly the same height as, as Carragher, and then you, and as you say, you, you meet him and you think, oh God, I'm nowhere near, I'm nowhere near that 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 height. And then equally, uh, I, I had a chat with Stephen Gerrard the other week, and uh, I couldn't believe how tall he was in the pitch. I looked like a dwarf on him. Well, it's a goalkeeper's um, paradox as well, isn't it? How can how can Simon Mingley? be six foot four yet similarly appear to be five foot ten it, no there's definitely an element to that one uh, by the way on your, uh, on, on, on your great weekend there uh, Everton failed to win Jordan Pickford's only got little arms uh, like Stop my dreams they fade and die <laughs> uh, copyright Andy do you know about the Andy this is podcast listeners do you know that Andy gets slaughtered on top you went for this I, don't, I didn't it's no, brilliant. But I, I can imagine absolutely, he does absolutely no, but it's me who said it yeah but, so Andy's, Andy's name is mud on top you went oh my no, no, no just everywhere I'm everywhere. getting on Twitter now I was, I'm Jordan P- Pickford's biggest advocate he I'm likes him I know. I he know. likes him. Well, people love to to misconstrue things, don't they? It seems to be uh, th- there should be a new profession uh, misconstruing things, and people could def- definitely make a living out of it. It's glorious. I love. I love. Yeah. I love. Love. Love that. Um, Jordan Pickford's only got little arms. Copyright Andy Heaton. Intercity Square. Liverpool to score three in exactly the first three. Exactly three in the first half. Can I just make a reference on that one? That's on. Uh, it's a little play on. It's a little pun there about the, uh, the West Ham's the, notorious following the, of the eighties. The, the, the Intercity Fair. Yep. 
I got that one, don't worry. Yeah. No. Um, Stagecoach ho- doesn't sound as hard, does it? <laughs> <laughs> You've got your perfect weekend, your great weekend, your horrible weekend. Listen, uh, always good to get Mike coming and talking about Reds Bat after this. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, you're going to be listening to me talk to Rory Smith, and then Mike and Andy will be back to talk about Liverpool versus West Ham at the weekend. Uh, we shall, uh, again, encourage you, if you are going to gamble, do so with Reds Bet. And if you're not, that's absolutely fine. Hopefully you thought that was a nice chat. I know I did. Joined by Rory Smith, as was trailed before the break. Uh, and to talk about his piece that he's written this week in the New York Times about the Champions League, we chatted briefly about the Champions League before, but about the Champions League and the fact that even in the last 16 phase, Rory, it appears to be becoming even more fractured in terms of the disparity between clubs. Liverpool won heavily, as we know. Bayern Munich won heavily, albeit against a Besiktas side, down to 10 men for 70 minutes. Uh, Manchester City won heavily and could have won even more emphatically as well. You, you, your argument within the piece is that it's now just not even the idea of you get to the last 16. Even within the last 16, there's still a huge gulf. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a kind of pet subject of mine, I think. And the, the, the way I, I kind of see it is that it's not good for European football as a whole if Liverpool, in this case, uh, or other teams, are putting seven past the Russian champions or five past the, pres- the prospective champions in Portugal uh, away from home. I, I don't think that suggests that that football across the continent, which is what kind of UEFA are meant to, to safeguard and what they're meant to look after and nurture, I don't think that suggests that's in, in a particularly healthy state. Um, we kind of accepted that with the group stages, that we, we know there's going to be lots and lots of, um, of unbalanced games, that you're going to get a few thrashings, that, that a lot of the time, a lot of the groups will be fairly obvious to predict who's going to finish first and second. Like If you're going to have Carabag in the tournament, the reality of the situation is that Carabag are going to find it really, really hard. Yeah, there's this, there's this, it's quite an interesting debate in itself that this idea that, that Platini had to bring more champions from, from broader, from other leagues, from smaller leagues in at the expense of, of the teams who finished third and fourth in, in some of the stronger leagues. A lot of people in England, Spain, Italy, Germany and France are not necessarily enamoured of that idea because their view is that Carabao didn't get smashed, but UEFA's view at the time, and I think it's probably still holds, is that it's a competition for all of Europe. It's good to try and get as many kind of representatives from as many different countries involved as possible. I fall on that side, uh, but I think there is a cost to that, and it is, yeah, you, you know, Carabao didn't get battered a few times. Celtic didn't get battered a few times, for example. And that's unfair on Celtic. It's, I don't mean it. The, um, but we've accepted that in the group stage. It's, it's, it's been that way for a while. We know that there is this, this elite that dominates the Champions League. There always has been. It, its identity has shifted over the years. You have periods of Italian dominance or English dominance or Spanish dominance. Uh, in the last five, six, seven, eight years, it has you know, been the super clubs, the sort of transcontinental, border irrelevant super clubs, Barca, Real, Bayern, plus the Premier League teams, maybe Juve, PSG, Atletico, on the fringes of it. Um, and the, the problem that I think exists is one is that there's quite a lot of those teams. You're sort of talking 10, 11, 12. It's a, it's a substantial cartel. And the other is that the gap between them and everybody else is growing exponentially and really quite quickly. So suddenly Porto, who, who are you know, a famous European name, great pedigree, as you say, they, they are beaten 5-0 by the team that, and I don't say this offensively, you know, last year and this year is the fourth best in England. And that, to me, to me, that's a problem. And the piece was kind of exploring whether I'm right to think that's a problem or I'm wrong. There's a lot of people, and the reaction to it has borne this out. A lot of people sort of say, well, look, we don't want to see you know, CSDA Sofia or Red Star Belgrade or Spartak Moscow in, in the last in the quarterfinals in the last 16. We want to see Liverpool, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern Munich. We want those teams there and they shouldn't be punished for their excellence. It, you can't kind of indulge smaller teams in smaller countries at the cost of the quality of the competition. And I, th- I think that is a valid argument. My worry is that if it stays this way, as it looks like it will, for five more years, ten more years, ten more years, fifteen more years, twenty more years, at what point do people start switching off? Because it's kind of accepted again that the group stages are a bit of a procession. You don't really need to watch them. They're a bit boring. If that starts to apply to the last 16, then do, what? Do we not take the last 16 seriously anymore? Is, is this a competition that has kind of an eight-month build-up and then two months of interest? And that's not healthy. And if you, do, if you get lots and lots of countries that just aren't involved at all, all their teams are getting humiliated, at what point do they switch off? Because although the, the TV markets that are really important to the Champions League are the big countries, England, Germany, Spain, Italy, France. All of the others are important in, in, in the aggregate, if you see what I mean. So you put them all together, they're quite important. Yeah. Individually, they're not that important. And I, I just think the balance has shifted too far one way. 
The immediate question about that is that if you're right, what actually is the next move? Because it, it seems as far as I can see, it, what struck me about Liverpool's demolition of Porto, and I, I was I was doing shows and I was talking about, and I was saying this is going to be a tough game. These have got European pedigree. It's institutionalised European pedigree. Look at us. We've only done, you know, this is the first time we made the last the, the, the qualified the knockout phase of the Champions League since 2009. We haven't been great on the road consistently in European football over the last few years, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that was the argument I was making, and it was very much blown out of the water by an excellent Liverpool performance and also a Liverpool performance that was full of you know the manager beforehand was talking about making Porto suffer I think that there was an expectation Liverpool internally within Liverpool they would put the sort of performance on that they put on Rory so my thing on this is this is a side that as you say came fourth in England last season will hopefully come second in England this season but who sort of came in inverted commas from nowhere insofar as Liverpool ever can come from nowhere and did this and we were able to do that because of the, the Premier League money because of the Champions League money because of Liverpool and Liverpool's heft my point is well what exactly do you do about that in order to change it? Yeah it's a, it's a great question and I think as as it, it, this maybe didn't occur to me before before I kind of all the best bits of the reaction to that piece, but Liverpool Porto was expected to be quite close in, in a way that maybe Man City Basel or, or Bayern Munich Besiktas wasn't expected to be especially close. And the fact that Liverpool did go and destroy Porto, albeit a Porto without uh, without two or three quite quite key players for them, and a Porto that aren't, you know, they're not the Porto of Mourinho, they're not the Porto of a few years ago. They have got massive financial problems. They had to sell Ruben Neves to Wolves last summer just as they needed the money. So, you know, they're not, then this isn't like a vintage Porto. But the fact that Liverpool could go and do that, it reflects really well on Liverpool, obviously. It, it suggests that there is a great strength to Liverpool. It was, it, it was a warning to the rest of Europe. I'm sure that, that when, the, when the draw for the quarterfinals is made, there won't be a single of those big elite European teams that's thinking, really fancy a trip to Anfield. That'd be great. And that, that's brilliant for Liverpool. What, what you do about it, I don't know. And. I mean, the, the thing that hovers all, over all of these conversations is, is the Super League, which is, is anathema to most people. It's heresy to a lot of purists to suggest that maybe, maybe the, the current structures that we have, which are all rooted in the, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, basically, that maybe they are becoming outdated to the, to the modern landscape. But every time I have conversations about, about these subjects or every time I write about these subjects from whatever from whatever angle it is, that is kind of where I come back to, that, that ultimately some, something structurally has to change. You could, you could maybe offset it a little bit. I think that a salary cap's not possible due to too many countries involved, but, but UEFA could certainly institute some sort of policy on how many senior, senior players you're allowed to own at any one time. Um, I think that's absolutely right. I think there's little things you could do in terms of homegrown players that might help because they might just dilute the... the, the the concentration of quality, and that's the problem. The problem at every level is that quality is being concentrated in a few teams. I wrote a few weeks ago about what's happening in leagues in Greece and Croatia and Switzerland and Belarus, the sort of second-tier leagues, and what you're seeing there is the same team is winning the title every single season, and that is because the same thing is happening. They have more money than all of their, all of their opponents. They're rendering the competition completely irrelevant, and it's something could could be done to maybe try and stop the flow a little bit of of the very best players down to the very best clubs. And do you know what? This is a total tangent. Am I allowed a tangent? Yes. So I went to see the Birmingham Derby a couple of weeks ago, and I tweeted that, um, that Jack Grealish was playing really well. He looks much, much bigger and much stockier. It's much stronger. And someone said to me on Twitter, said, uh, if he's so good, why is he playing for a championship team? Or why is he playing for Villa in the championship? And I thought, well, do you know what? It's not that long ago that most teams had some quite good players. And it's now become really alien to us, the idea that a team that is not one of the absolute elite should have good players. It's really surprising. It it's almost seems old-fashioned. And that is the root of the problem, that the, the talent is so concentrated in so few teams that nobody else can compete, even Porto. And I think that is something that, that maybe could be done to stop the Super League for a while, but I do think that's maybe where we end up at some point is, as we say, these 15, 16, 20 clubs are beyond what we can, what everybody else can help to match, so they have to go and play their own competition. I mean, on there, the, 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 the next sort of logical step beyond that, and we will continue to have tangents because we can enjoy ourselves, there is... 
there's, you know, you mentioned Celtic earlier on, and one of the things that occurs to me is that the only, that's, you know, if you want to solve a problem like Celtic, and trust me, Celtic supporters may not feel like they're a problem that needs solving, they're very much enjoying Brendan Rodgers' brand of football, meaning that they, 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 they so rarely lose and put exhibitions on everywhere they go. But the other side of that is that, you know, Celtic, if if for the size of club, the worldwide brand, in inverted commas, the, 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 the heft that is Celtic, that they are, they are a European giant, the only way in which they could genuinely sort of there's two well there's two ways in which they could become uh, be, be able to punch that weight the first one is somehow getting into the Premier League which I don't think anyone's going to stand for anytime soon but the other one is the idea of a European Super League and I think that that's sort of what you're you're going to end up arguing uh, at some stage that for Celtic to be able to ever again win the Champions League whatever the Champions League form then is because when they won it it was the European Cup for them to be crowned kings of Europe one more time the only way they're probably going to be able to do it is in a league format well, yeah. So the I've always I've always thought that if you put Celtic and Rangers into the Premier League within five or ten years, one of them would win it, just because they are such vast clubs, they have such massive support, they and being in the Premier League, they'd have access to more money and they'd be able to attract better players. And I, you know, you you could see Celtic and Rangers in England being forming a top eight with the other with the other the other six and, and shifting Everton and Leicester down to ninth. But I think I think the the first step to me logically, and it's something UEFA are looking at are trans-border leads, cross-border leads in, in areas where that works. So there's a there's a Balkan basketball league where no away fans are allowed to travel, but you get Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia and Slovenia playing their teams, their basketball teams playing with each other. It works. It's impossible to imagine it, imagine it kind of politically uh, happening in football, especially in a week in which we've seen terrible violence in, um, in Bilbao before the Spartak Moscow game. That would maybe make sense. I know that Scandinavian FA have talked about a Royal Scandinavian League where Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and I think Finland, but I'm not certain, would kind of come together in a midweek competition in addition to their national leagues. And Champions League participation. Yeah, exactly. Um, that is the next step, because when you, when you get these smaller markets together, they then become much more attractive to, to TV companies, to sponsors, all that stuff increases the revenues, it closes the gap, that makes sense. You could do the same in, in, in Holland and Belgium, you could do the same in maybe Austria and Switzerland, have some sort of Central European League. That, to me, makes sense, because otherwise the danger is, as I say, these leagues themselves are being dominated by one team. That team is then going into the, champ- into the Champions League, maybe making the group stages, maybe not, getting smashed six times, taking the money and going home, and the cycle is continuing. And that isn't healthy for anybody on any level. European football, in my mind, has lost something because teams like Red Star Belgrade, teams like Olympiakos, teams like the, you know, the Moscow clubs or Dino Kiev or whoever, Legia Warsaw, the fact that they are now seen as minnows, I think is really unhealthy. We've accepted it about Eastern European countries. That probably happened, what, 25 years ago? We just decided, yeah, all right, forget Eastern Europe. And then we've kind of done the same with Scotland, as you say, with Celtic. It's not so long since you know, Rangers made a, a US Cup final, since... Celtic and Rangers have had decent runs in the in the Champions League, uh, but we've now accepted that Scotland and, and Holland and Belgium, they don't really matter either. Who cares if their clubs don't make the last 16? It might go the same way with Portugal in in the next five years that we sort of think, well, Porto, Benfica and Sporting get to the group stages, they get smashed loads and go home. There comes a point in my mind when someone's going to say, look, this isn't really working. The Champions League is becoming the exclusive preserve of 10 clubs from five countries. That's not what it's meant to do. So we have to do something. The first step there, as I say, that there are little things you could do to maybe stop that that rapid growth in terms of limiting what those clubs can do. Something financial fair play was initially designed to do and now doesn't do. But beyond that, you're going to have to look structurally. And the first step there is saying, right, let's bring the borders down on certain leagues. Let's let co- countries get together and kind of maximise their their revenue potential to try and close the financial gap and, and then let's let's take it from there. A European Super League probably wouldn't include Celtic or Ajax at this point. I, I think the, the 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 really massive clubs have decided that that they're not relevant. And my, my worry is someone again to quote from Twitter, someone said to me that it is a problem but they're not really the target audience because they're Scottish. That you know all anybody cares about are the T V pools and in, in, in the big five countries. But there's an awful lot of people now who aren't the target audience to the Champions League. And that's not a good thing. And I, I, I'm sure that's something you wait for a conscious of, but maybe lack the imagination or courage or whatever it is to say, right, we have to do something about this. Because otherwise, what is the end game? Is the end game just that we know who the 
we know we know roughly who the semi-finalists are already. Is the end game what we know who the quarter-finalists are as well, and we know who the, who's in the last sixteen? It just that isn't a competition that is long-term in my mind, just a sustainable success. Okay, uh, fantastic speak to Rory Smith, New York Times, for all of his fantastic pieces of writing about football, about European football across the board, although he still goes, he's still real, he still goes to the Birmingham Derby in the Championship. Thank you very much to him. This is the Anfield Rap. Neil Atkins can be back with Andy, Mike and Adam just after this. Always good to speak to Rory. Uh, this is the Anfield Rap on Radio City Talk. We're back over now with Andy Heaton, Adam Smith and Mike Nevin to talk about Liverpool's forthcoming game against West Ham. It's you can't. We're going to have this conversation from now until the end of the season, Adam. The conversation we're going to have is we're going to be playing against a lot of sides who cannot quite break three, free of the relegation zone. There was a point about sort of six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, where you thought, you know what, fair play to Moyes. He's got them out of seeming danger. They've pulled themselves away. They look like they could be all right. And yet they, like Crystal Palace, like a number of other sides, even Bournemouth, who had a nice little run of, of, of unbeaten in seven, just get themselves absolutely pulled back in. And there's... They're now coming to Anfield, desperate for points, uh, desperate for any point they can get their hands on. And that means that we know the West Ham we're going to get. It's going to be similar to the one that went to Chelsea and got a draw earlier in the season. They're going to play. They're going to they're they're gonna play in a manner which gives Liverpool the initiative. They're going to play in a manner which says we're just trying to get out of here with anything, anything we can leave, we, we can get our hands on. Yeah, and you can't blame them for that particularly. And, and you know, that's something that David Moyes has kind of made his raison d'etre in previous seasons and previous clubs. And... I think the thing is that you, you we get a little bit obsessed, I think, with the idea of a team being being the finished article, almost. This Liverpool team isn't the finished article. I think we're building towards something that could be very special. And I think if you look side by side, the goals scored, points gained between now and 13-14, which most people would say is one of the best seasons we've had in the Premier League era, they're pretty much side by side. And the biggest difference is that Manchester City are so far ahead of everybody, it makes it look absolutely like we're not having a particularly good season. Uh, but the reality is that that we are f- perfectly fine against low block teams. We've racked up plenty of points against teams that want to sit back and defend. But we've had one or two stumbles against them. Now the reason we've had one or two stumbles against them is we're not yet a team at City's level that could, you know, that could absolutely run away with the league. That's the the, the big difference, I think, at, at the moment between where we are and where we want to be. So the idea of playing a David Moyes team who are going to look and have the low block is not a particularly exciting one. But I think that we should have enough to beat them. I think we've come off the back of a very nice Champions League game. We've come off the back of a rest. So it's not even as if he, he'll be rotating players because he, he you know, he wants to rest people. We've, we've just been, you know, they've been away in Marbella for a fortnight or whatever it is they've been doing out there, doing karaoke and things. So I, I think we're... We should see a Liverpool team raring to go. The, 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 I'm not worried about it being a, a, an inverted commas low block team. What I am worried about mm. is the fact that they've had they're out of rhythm, and that's the thing that the, the thing that Klopp likes a lot is rhythm, isn't it? I want to come back to talk about rhythm. I do want to talk a little bit about the, about the opponents, though. It strikes me, Mike, that as I say, it's more that we're going to get. It's not just talking about West Ham; it's talking about the whole situation. In, in seasons gone by, you play this. You, you, seasons gone by. At this stage of the season, you're at home against whoever's twelfth, and you're thinking, you know what? They're not quite on the beach but you're not expecting them to come and fight tooth and nail mm. the reality at the minute is that they're 12th but they're only 5 points ahead of 19th let alone 18th who they're only 4 points ahead of that all of these sides going all the way up to Bournemouth in 10th they remain so vulnerable Mike and for yeah. me that's the we're going to come up against a lot of sides who are defending for their lives I think it's the point they're not just defending or defending well they're defending for their lives and the league place almost doesn't matter in that they're all a bit much of the muchness they've all got strengths they've all got weaknesses but they're all going to come to Anfield and we're going to go to their gaps between now and the end of the season and they are defending for their lives Yeah and, and then just while you were talking there I was just thinking about traditionally maybe pretty much most season you'll, you'll see a team that's probably mid-table around this time of the year suddenly gets sucked into a relegation battle um, so that that sort of furthers your point, really, about the being half the division. They really. can all they can all be sucked in. They can all be sucked in. They yeah. can all be sucked in off one weekend's results. And, and we've got to play against quite a few of them, as you as you quite like rightly. Nine of them. There. Nine of them. Um, and sort of, I suppose, voicing a little bit of Adam's concern there is that where Liverpool have lost three games this season, um, which is you know thus far it's pretty respectable, as you say, good points tally. Um, two points a game we're going out or just over I think with shut- any other season City you know sort of notwithstanding you know you're in, you're in with a, a shout um, but where, where, have we, where have we dropped points that I think most people have sort of forgotten about really West Brom at home 0-0 Everson at home 1-1 
Manchester United at home, nil-nil. Burnley at home, 1-1. And those were all... Burnley are a bit more progressive. I think we've talked about this than perhaps the others. But and, we, than people, and than people think. But, but, um, but certainly Pardew, Allardyce, Mourinho came, came with the low block. And Liverpool managed to score uh, one goal in those three games. And that's my, that, that would be my concern. Not a particular concern about West Ham. Not a particular concern about, about David Moyes. But the fact that they, those teams have got a, a manuscript in front of them about how to deny Liverpool three points. And the other thing that strikes me, and Adam points on it there, Andy, is, is the rhythm question. I think you've seen a couple of times this season. I think, for instance, when we get beat against Swansea. Swansea. It was after an eight-day break. It was after an eight-day break. That yeah. they, I think even there, they, they, they went away for a bit. I think this is a strange Liverpool side. The manager just does talk about it he wants them to sort of feel as that they're playing my point is that Anfield may need to be may need to be a little bit patient on uh, on, on, on Saturday I, I have a feeling it's going to be a long afternoon I don't know you know uh, I mean the Swansea thing aside because that was a bit of an outlier if you look at the, 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 our statistics about games rest and points gained after X amount of days break it actually shows that the longer the rest the more likely we are to win oh, excellent. Swansea aside quelling um, <laughs> and also just £5 go, a month everyone you know, <laughs> but then you, and then you look at the <laughs> It's funny you mentioned Bournemouth because Bournemouth and West Ham are both top of the form table of the teams that could get sucked in 11 points out of the last six and they've only lost one game in the last six. Yeah. It, but what that game they lost was weird because it kind of stuck out because it got beat by Brighton which is one of the relegation rivals so people kind of take notice of it. They've won three and drawn two there. So, you know, you say about getting sucked in it's been them and Bournemouth that, that have been pulling away which paradoxically think, makes me think it works in Liverpool's favour because they're not in the worst form in the world. They're not coming and thinking, oh, we're going to get a cane in here. Mm. David, the Moyes, David Moyes thing aside, you know, I think that could play into our hands a little bit. I'd be more worried if they were in a poor run of form. Mm. Do you know what's fascinating? And, and what, what, what is absolutely 17th? fascinating about Moyes is that, you know, his record at Liverpool is appalling. And, you know, we all know that he's not fussy on us, um, having spent so many years at Goodison Park. I mean, who's to say that he, he, he suddenly um, goes against his, his normal type? And, and, and tries to have a go at us tomorrow. I mean, it would be ill-advisable, I'd say. But, but if your team's but, in good form, yeah, what, what, what are you going to say to your lads? You're more likely to say, yeah, we're in good form, let's try and continue, but let's see if we can get a win at Anfield. And I think I think Moyes, as much as I don't like him, um, you know, he's, he's got certain qualities and he, he'll be determined to put one over on Liverpool tomorrow. I think it's absolutely fair to be pointing out about the fact that these, ta- these teams are going to be scrapping for their lives. But I think that underestimates how much Liverpool want to do well this season. We have finished second three times in the Premier League era. We have an opportunity to finish second this season and do so in a season where there won't then be a massive pressure of saying, oh, Liverpool are up there as title favourites for next season because that'll still be Manchester City. So if we could finish, if the previous times we've finished second, we've fallen off a cliff the following season, dropped about 20 points the season that comes after it. So you're absolutely right, yeah, th- these teams, West Ham are going to come scrapping for the lives, but Liverpool aren't going to be going into this and thinking, you know, oh, a draw will do us. No, three, we want three points because we want to go above Manchester United and we want to put the pressure on Manchester United and make them have to go into a Chelsea game where they they need to win to go back above us or they need a point to go back above us. It, it, this isn't a time when Liverpool are going to be, whereas previous time you're like, well, we've got top four, so we can you know we can sort of take the foot off the gas a little bit, but oh, look, these teams down the bottom of the table, they're scrapping for everything. Oh, we're all scrapping and we're a better team. And I, and I think regardless of what, whatever tactics that uh, Moyes has got up his sleeve tomorrow, Liverpool's best, best way to try and beat them is to try and blow them away in the first 20. Whether, you know, oh, it's one of them. They, I think they, if you get one sit. early on, and you know, go back to 2014, when, when we were on that incredible run of form, teams weren't just coming and having a go, a go at us. The, the Arsenal five-one was something of an, of an anomaly. I remember playing Sunderland and, and we had to scrap for the win. Um, we scored. I think Gerrard put us one up just before half time. There were several games where teams came and defended us against, defended against us, was wanted to defend against us, and we just blew them away. Do you know what I was thinking about West Ham as well, and the, and there could be one in this. I remember a young Daniel Agger absolutely smashing one in against yes. West Ham. Yeah, cop and, and it makes me I might, so I might have a little flutter on Virgil Van Dijk to be honest because he's, he's got he's got a trigger on him. Like it's Fair also why I think the, the that shot, by the way, that shot uh, caused more problems than anything else. It meant that every time he ever got the ball within thirty yards. <laughs> Shoot, shoot, yeah, yeah. and then he would shoot and none of them went in <laughs> but they're already yeah. doing that they're already doing that with Van Dyke, so yeah. it doesn't really matter um, but the, the, that's why I think going going back a few results it's why that one, one of for me the most pleasing results that we've got all season was the 2-1 against Burnley because we had to scrap and we had to fight and they've shown that they can do it so if, the, if teams come to Anfield and say you're going to have to scrap here the players know scrapping is something they can do I think, yeah, I think, I think I Adam's right the only thing I would say just to, to counter it slightly is the fact that that was away from home and I just, I just think it's a different environment and Neil talks about the crowd. 
having to be patient. That's, that's a big um, thing, definitely. You know, our crowd, I mean, we've referenced it on so many times. I mean, it's, it's schizophrenic. It can get off the massive, massive game. And, uh, and ultimately, but when, when it's less celebrated opposition, they just don't seem to switch off and it doesn't help the team. Uh, very very quickly then, uh, pick me a team. We're going to start with the goalkeeper, be Carius in goal. Uh, we presume so far it'll be Alexander-Arnold. Can, right can I just ask a quick question about Carius? Go on. Right, the three away clean sheets. You know, we're talking about the nervousness in the team. Do you think, because, do you think that self-assurance at Anfield, that's what's going to do it for me? I think, that, I think that assurance will do it. Uh, I think you'll probably see Lovren and Van Dijk at centre-back. Uh, I think you'll see Robertson at left-back. For me, you know what the front three is going to be. The question Trent. is your midfield three. I think it's Trent at right back. You know? Trent at right. I agree with you. I think it will be Trent at right back for this one. But for me, the question is your midfield three. Um, I I would pick if if I were picking the side, but I think some of it might depend on upon people's fitness. But I would certainly be picking both Henderson and Emre Chan, and then one other could be Milner, could be Lallana. I go Milner. You go Milner. I would as well. Would you go Henderson and Chan as well? Both of I you. I would. Yeah. Uh, Adam. Uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's probably hand on the tiller and the. I think it's probably Milner. I, I, I wouldn't. If it, look, put it this way: to be honest, if it was Wijnaldum, if it was Oxley Chamberlain, I wouldn't really care. With or if it was Lallana, uh, or if it was Lallana. I mean, he needs fitness. He needs, you know, he needs minutes. So I, I wouldn't really mind with any of them. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was Milner till about an hour, and then it's Lallana. Uh, and I think we'll see Lallana start against Porto. Give me a prediction for the scoreline, Andy. Three uh, 0 Adam. Three one. Mike. Um, two one Liverpool. Two one Liverpool. Oh, okay, the you going, Anfield wrap this week. I'm going to go with Liverpool three nil. Uh, fancy the boys in red uh, to put a show on, but it wouldn't surprise me if all three goals come after the hour mark. I basically expect Liverpool to score either all their goals in the first half an hour or the second half an hour. Uh, sorry, all the third half an hour. They're not going to do any. Yeah, they're going to do one or the other. Yeah. Uh, that's 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 when the business is going to happen. So we can stay uh, down on the concourse for, a, for an extra ten minutes. Uh, we can all go for a pint at half time. Thank yeah. you very much to Andy Heaton, to Adam Smith, and to Mike Nevin, to Rory uh, Smith, and to Ian Salmon. Being a packed City Talk show. Hope you've enjoyed it and enjoy your weekend. It's, it could be your last three pm of the season, I reckon. Podcast Network.